from Amityville to Sleepy Hollow, from the ghostly Rapids Theater in Niagara Falls to the cursed Dakota building in Manhattan, and right here in the oh-so-haunted borough of Brooklyn. It's 5 p.m. on Halloween, and it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics of people and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. My co-host, Ben Max of GothamGazette.com, is not in today. He is out either cavorting with the undead or being a better better father than I and actually going trick-or-treating with his with his child. Good luck to Ben on the candy score. Uh, so we'll be with you for the hour, just me solo, but with several friends. Uh, we are about a week from Election Day, less than a week from Election Day, and there's ample reminders around us of some of the stakes involved in the politics we've been discussing on this show and and elsewhere. You have the mailing of bombs. You have uh, horrible shootings with a clearly anti-Semitic bent to them. There is a report out about the extent of homelessness among students in New York City. We have new warnings about climate change and the president talking about birthright citizenship. And while not every one of these issues is framed in every race we've discussed, certainly it is all part of the political picture that we tried to give you on this show. There are a lot of elections on tap next Tuesday, Election Day, November 6th. There are a lot of candidates in the mix. We have tried our best here to give you a taste of some of the different views that are on tap uh, on your ballot uh, by having as many candidates as we could. And we're going to continue that idea today by having a sort of a speed dating round with five candidates uh, from some of the statewide races, three candidates running for attorney general from the Reform, Libertarian, and Green Party, and two candidates for the post of New York State Comptroller from the Greens and from the Libertarian uh, ballot. We'll be talking to them briefly about their plans, ask a few questions, and then move on. The idea is to give you a taste of some of the choices you have. You've obviously heard on this show from the Republican and Democratic nominees for Attorney General, for Comptroller, and uh, from many of the candidates for Governor, all those actually except for Governor Cuomo himself, the Democratic candidate. But I believe we have our first caller on the line. We are going to welcome to WBAI's Max and Murphy show, Mr. Mark Dunley. He is the Green Party candidate for New York State Comptroller. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jarrett. So talk to us briefly, if you can, about your reasons for running for this post and what qualifies you to oversee the state's massive $209 billion pension fund. Well, certainly the big issue I'm running is about the issue of climate change. And as you pointed out, the United Nations just issued a warning that we have 12 years left to take dramatic, worldwide, unprecedented action if we want civilization as we know it to survive climate change. Even the New York Post seemed shook up by that report and treated it very seriously. A very simple step, which I've been working for the last five years at 350.org, which we've managed largely to get New York City to do, is to divest the state pension fund from fossil fuels. We've had a 1,000 institutions in the last five years agree to do this, $7.2 trillion. New York State, the controller, won't do it, won't meet with us, so I decided to uh, run against him. Report came out recently that if he had divested 10 years ago when he first took office, the pension fund would have an extra $22 billion. So it's both morally wrong to invest in the destruction of the planet, but it's also a bad financial decision, a decision that, for instance, the former state controller, um, Tom Zanzillo, who was there before uh, DiNapoli, has repeatedly stressed we need to get out while these 
stocks have some value. Uh, at the same time last week, we had the Acton State Attorney General decide after a three-year investigation to sue Exxon for lying to the world, particularly to the investors, about the risk posed by climate change. So here we have the controller trying to defend that I want to keep a billion dollars in Exxon so that they'll hear my voice. I don't know what they're hearing. Why the attorney general is saying they have defrauded the investors, including the state pension fund, and they need to be held financially accountable. In terms of my own background, you know, I have a law degree, graduated top of my class with the um, Bachelor's of Science in Management, uh, ran nonprofits for, you know, 30, 40 years statewide. I'm one of the few former elected officials in New York State who can say that every year I was in elected office, I cut taxes. Uh, And one of the reasons I did that was I used the techniques I learned in the nonprofit field, put everything out to bid. And one thing that occurred was the county Democratic chairperson of my county went to prison for two years because it turned out before I became a town board member, he was skimming money out of the town insurance contract. When I put that out to bid, that became exposed. So I've had a record of going after corruption. I started uh, the New York Public Interest Research Group. As a law student, I wrote the law that gave taxpayers the right to sue for illegal expenditure of taxpayer funds. And many of the reforms that Tom DiNapoli have been willing to champion on how to deal with things like economic development and open government were actually things that I worked on 20, 25 years ago uh, through the Hunger Action Network and the Fiscal Policy Institute. So talk more about divestment, because uh, controller Tom DiNapoli, uh, who has been in office since early 2007, uh, he has announced recently and did complete the divestment of the state's pension funds from the private prison uh, industry. But he has not, as you said, embraced divestment from uh, uh, carbon-related stocks. What's the rationale that he gives for that? Well, he doesn't actually explain the difference between the two, because he argues on one hand we should not be using social considerations to make policy decisions. Then he did that with the private prison stuff. Now, I support divestment from private prisons, but it's inconsistent to make that. Um, and it also turns out the woman at the controller's office, uh, who was leading the fight against divestment, um, when she recently retired, was she was rewarded with a $300,000 a year uh, position on on the board of one of the major fossil fuel companies in the state. So it seems like a huge, you know, conflict of interest that was occurring. He argues with shareholder advocacy. I want to get my billion dollars worth of stocks and, and go work with Exxon. And we're like, well, Tom, 50 years of shareholder advocacy has never succeeded. And in fact, since I started working on this campaign, I've discovered both that it is uh, all these resolutions are only advisory. And in fact, it is illegal on the Federal Security Exchange Commission rules to actually pass or introduce a resolution, say, to keep Exxon, to keep 80% of its fossil fuels in the ground. So why he continues to persist with shareholder advocacy, I mean, I, I knew that we probably couldn't get the legislature to pass a bill forcing Tom to act because remember, of course, that Tom was actually a state legislator and appointed by the state legislature when Hevesy was forced to, to resign. So I knew they would protect him. But I hope that if we could get 50 legislators to co-sponsor a bill to require the state to divest from fossil fuels, that he would wake up and do it. Well, we got 50 legislators 
refused to co-sponsor the bill. And if anything, he, you know, drags his feet on it. And in fact, he tends increasingly to actually articulate the talking points of the fossil fuel industry, who increasingly profile him in their annual reports as a responsible voice against divestment. So like, for instance, in this debate, the second debate that was heard that I was excluded from, you know, he says, well, I'm not going to divest because people are still driving cars. So it means that people haven't, you know, really committed to stop using fossil fuels. Well, that's not really a proper, uh, you know, response. But one of the responses that he gives and other opponents of divestment uh, for fossil fuels say is, look, the chief job of the comptroller and the pension funds is to make sure all these hardworking former state employees get their guaranteed pension benefits without tapping into the taxpayers to do it, and that private prisons were a few million dollars here or there. You're talking about billions and billions of dollars in these fossil fuel stocks, and it's simply unloading them and then trying to maintain the risk balancing and the the returns from the pension fund is, is fairly complicated, maybe impossible. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, most of the decisions are actually just made by indexes, so there really isn't a whole lot of decisions. But, as I stated earlier, if you know, there have been studies that if he had divested 10 years ago, the state pension fund would have an extra $22 billion. So he has cost every single beneficiary, on average, about $20,000 by refusing to divest. Thompson Dillow, who is the acting state controller for the state, has put out several studies that said, yeah, you know, fossil fuels was a good investment 10 years ago, but for the last four years, uh, they have underperformed every other part of the, you know, the Wall Street market. And when the world literally has said, your product is killing life on this planet, and we're going to debate whether we're going to get rid of you in five years or 10 years or 20 years, but we're getting rid of you, that's not a good business plan moving into the future. Uh, We did get New York City two years ago to divest from coal. Probably people should be suing New York City and New York State for taking so long to divest from coal because by the time they divested, it wasn't worth a whole lot. You know, right now, Exxon still has some value, but that is increasingly not going to be the case, especially with more and more litigation going after them, you know, for the destruction they caused um, by driving climate change like Hurricane Sandy, but also the fact that they lied to the public even though their scientists told them otherwise about the risk posed by climate change. They have a huge financial liability from all these lawsuits that are beginning to pile up, and the world is saying, we cannot burn your product any longer. How is that a responsible financial decision to continue to invest in something which the world has said, we have to stop using this product, and also when all the you know actual data shows that the value has been declining over the last four or five years? We are on the line. We're on the line with Mark Dunley. He is the Green Party candidate for state comptroller. Mark, let's say you are elected and you go ahead with divest from from fossil fuels. There are obviously calls to divest from other products, too, from firearms manufacturers and companies that have bad labor records and people involved in any way in pornography or some of the calls in other states. How will you decide? I mean, ultimately, the fund's going to earn, going to own stock in companies, and those companies are going to have... Uh, let's just say, complex moral footprints. How do you decide what you stay in and what you sell off? Well, I mean, you're supposed to get 8 eight to 8.6% rate of return, you know, on your investment. Now, to be honest, Tom DiNapoli has been 2 or 3 percentage points 
below the statutory requirement, though, you know, he hasn't done, he's done worse than the rest of the pensions in the country, but not a whole lot worse. So I, I would continue to, you know, make sure that we invest in things that uh, are going to turn a profit. Um, but for instance, I recently had a meeting with the head of the woman who runs the state energy department these days. And one of the things she pointed out was that in Europe, it has been the public pension funds that have driven the development of offshore wind. That is why the gold mine off the Long Island is actually being developed by European wind companies. And one of the things is that, you know, these hedge funds which invest in offshore wind, you know, they want, you know, an 18% rate of return. So if we can invest in something, say, like offshore wind and get the 8.6% rate of return or 8% that we want, we can still make money, uh, you know, for the state. But are there things that, you know, does not make sense as a public policy matter for the state to continue to invest in? And would I be willing to examine that? Yes. I would like to get, you know, a little stronger representation, you know, from the labor uh, groups uh, on some of these issues. They have a very strong role in the New York City pension plan. So I'd like to see a little bit more of that type of model at the state level. Um, but I'm willing to consider other social considerations. As you mentioned, certainly we probably should not be investing in weapons manufacturers. So that is all the time we have, I'm afraid, Mark. This is kind of a speed round, but thank you for calling in. That's Mark Dunley. He is the Green Party candidate from Controller. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Good luck next Tuesday. Thank you, Jared. And up next, moving right along, we have the candidate for the Libertarian Party uh, for the same office, for New York State Comptroller. Uh, you just heard from Mark Dunley. Obviously, the Democrat running for re-election is Tom DiNapoli. His Republican challenger, whom you heard her a few weeks ago, is Jonathan Trichter. And now we have on Mr. Kruger Gallaudet, who is the Libertarian candidate. Sir, welcome to Max and Murphy. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. So who, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, why you're running to be the, uh, the state's uh, sort of top financial officer. Uh, well, I, uh, my, my background is in, uh, in uh, corporate finance, uh, in Wall Street making back in the day uh, I had a, got an MBA from Columbia and then went worked for General Electric G Capital uh, and uh, worked for a private equity fund and now and now I'm a uh, an entrepreneur uh, uh, starting up a business called Baco Burger which which uh, we hope to make uh, make a big splash with and uh, and I developed real estate and the reason uh, the reason I uh, decided to run for this. Really, I was kind of a last libertarian. I've been a libertarian since the 70s and uh, kind of got discouraged. But then in the last presidential election, we had uh, we got 3.6% of the uh, presidential vote, which is, which is pretty amazing. If we get 5%, uh, that pushes up into a federal funding situation. So we become, uh, uh, you know, kind of a recognized third party the biggest third party in the nation. So I think the nation's ready for a third party. And then along came Larry Sharp running for governor for New York. And that got me out of my lapse libertarian house because the guy is, the guy is really good and articulates our, our message so well that, that I wanted to do anything I could to help him uh, uh, run for governor. And a uh, controller's job, and I call it controller, I don't call it comptroller. The control, like I did in the private, in the private sector. Uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, one, one of the big problems with that is is how much power the, the controller has over the pension fund, two hundred billion dollar pension fund, and the controller answers to no one. So I don't like that. I I like to fix that as best I can. I'm not sure the 
the exact solution. Uh, there's no board of trustees overseeing it right now. Um, so that I basically want to make it squeaky clean. So there's absolutely no no chance of, of corruption or graft. That's right. That's an interesting point. The the city's pension funds, and there are five of them, separate ones for like the fire department, retirees, the cops, the teachers, and and general government employees. Each of them has a board of directors, you know, some public officials, some union members or union leaders. Uh, but the state pension fund, it really is just the comptroller who who oversees them. Um, and uh, and as you mentioned, that is uh, that's quite a bit of financial power. Yeah. And I, and I, I guess I haven't converted you on the pronunciation. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to disagree on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about being a libertarian. And, you know, we had Mr. Sharp on a couple weeks ago. Um, for you, what, is that, what does that mean exactly? Well, it, it means the, the freedom comes first uh, all across the board, whether you know, it's in the bedroom or whether it's, uh, you know, in the economy or, or whether, uh, uh, you know, the size of government, uh, the more government you have, less freedom we have. So, uh, you know, I recognize that we're, we're never going to achieve opportunism. It's, it's a radical proposition, but I think our goal should always be toward, uh, toward, toward that goal. In other words, the, 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 the business of government should be to put itself out of business. I mean, you know, imagine a world where we really don't need government. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's my dream, but it's, uh, it's also unattainable in my lifetime. But that's where, you know, that's where I think every, you know, everything should be directed toward how can we reduce the size of government? And how can we empower people, uh, to, you know, to take over the control of their lives. What do you think of the performance of the incumbent uh, controller or controller, uh, Tom Denapoli? <laughs> controller. Well, you know, from what I've read, he's, and I've met him, he's a, he's a good guy. Um, and uh, from what I understand, he's done a decent job. He's, he's put in some controls to, to prevent the kind of corruption that happened with the, uh, with the prior controller. Um, and uh, so I think all in all, he's doing a good job. Uh, the pension fund is uh, one of the better ones out of the 50 states in terms of uh, uh, being close to uh, uh, covering its its uh, liabilities. I guess are up in the 90 percent range, but you know it should be 100 percent. I mean, you know, why why didn't praise to a pension fund that's covering 90 percent of its benefits? But anyway, so that that you know, I, I don't think he's a bad controller, but I I think. Uh, you know, a reason you'd want to vote for me is, one, just to change things. I mean, he's been there a long time. We don't know what's going on. I'm not saying he's done anything corrupt, but who knows? He's, he has complete control over the pension fund, so uh, we don't know for sure. And uh, and we need a change. We need to break the, up the duopoly, this, this Democratic-Republican duopoly that's been running this country, running the state, you know, for years and years and years, and things don't get better. We need a third party. So, you know, people are going to vote. Uh, and especially in New York, I mean, if Republicans voted Libertarian, it would give us a lot of power um, because, um, you know, the uh, Democrats are so much in control in New York. I think voting Republican is kind of a waste of vote at this stage. So one of the things that people talk about when it comes to the pension funds is you have you know this enormous pool of money that the state has to invest to get returns to pay the retirees with, and money is power, and the question is how you wield that power. And so some of those investments go into like New York State Industries with the idea that that's supporting the business climate here. Uh, and then there's always the question of whether there are places that money should not go, whether the state should divest from private prisons or from uh, carbon-related industries 
industries or from firearms manufacturers. What would be your approach to that? Do you feel as though any of those considerations should guide uh, guide investments? I, I think in general, uh, the, the pension should be invested uh, to get the best return. Um, so I, I would advocate uh, no, no political influence on where the money is invested. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not adverse to to uh, directing uh, money away from from uh, what I consider not good invest or, or not socially conscious investments or uh, you know not not desirable. But again, I, I would want to make it squeaky clean. I would just I would want to make pension fund fund so squeaky clean that I really don't have that much influence over it. That it, that it's one of the, uh, that the best practices of investing uh, for the best return for it. So uh, we have just a couple minutes left with Kruger Gallaudet. He is the libertarian candidate for New York State Comptroller, if you pronounce it like him, or Comptroller, if you pronounce it like me. Um, <laughs> so talk to me. I mean, this uh, obviously, DiNapoli is is favored in polls. It's up to the voters to decide. I think it's safe to say that it, it's unlikely that you would, would win the post. Um, so what are your goals going into Election Day? What would constitute a good showing for you and for the party? Well, we, we as, as a party, we need 50,000 votes to uh, to get us over the top for becoming uh, 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 registered or, or a, a recognized party in New York State. And that way, we, we uh, it would make our job easier in the next next election. So that that's certainly our goal. I think I, I don't know the, the latest polls, but I think uh, Larry Sharp has generally so much enthusiasm. I think we'll we'll, we'll achieve that easily. So. Uh, so yeah, so that's our goal. You know, I mean, we're, we're not going to win. I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit here and say, "Oh man, it's going to be some last minute surprise that, that'll somehow get me over the top." But uh, uh, but that you know, that's that's our goal is to get get out the message of libertarians, get out the message that that we need a third party and uh, don't waste your vote. Uh, vote for us, even even if you you know don't agree with all our positions, uh, you're bound to agree with some of them. So so give us a shot. Well, thanks very much for giving us a shot, Kruger Gallaudet, the Libertarian candidate for Comptroller. Good luck next Tuesday, and thanks for calling in. Okay, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. We are coming to you from the studios here on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. Less than a week before Election Day, we're doing some speed dating with uh, some of the candidates who are among your options on the ballot next Tuesday for statewide offices. We heard from Mark Dunley Green for Comptroller, just then Kruger Gallaudet, a uh, libertarian for Comptroller. And now we're going to hear from some of the candidates for Attorney General, the other statewide wide race that's out there. On this program, you've heard from Keith Wofford, who was the Republican nominee many months back. We heard from Letitia James, who was the Democratic uh, nod for that office. And now we're going to hear from the Reform Party candidate. Uh, joining us on the line is Miss Nancy Sliwa. Hi, ma'am. Welcome to Max and Murphy. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background. What brings you to this race? Um, well, um, my background is um, I'm an attorney for over 10 years in New York. I, I had um, a solo practice initially following law school where I concentrated mostly on criminal defense and family law. And following that, I've been in e-discovery, which is um, like a field of litigation. Um, and... You know, but but I would I would say what kind of brought me really here was for 
over 10 years, I've been working with um, homeless animals in New York. And uh, that's been just more of a passion of mine. And actually, that's really like the cornerstone of my, my candidacy, um, promoting animal rights statewide. So talk about how the Attorney General's office, which is a very interesting office, a lot of power, but really can be shaped greatly by the individual stamp of whoever has it. How would that office lend itself to defending animal rights? Oh, sure. Well, I, uh, I would say, I mean, for, for, one, for one example, I think that... Um, you know, I mean, my platform definitely is having no-kill shelters. Now, in terms of there are contracts, there's actually a contract now that's going through uh, New York City. It's, it's attempting to be passed, which would continue the, um, the city-run shelters through Animal Care and Control, which is like a, a kind of a quasi-city organization management and it's about to have a 34-year renewal contract. So anything like that would make absolutely no sense to have something that is going to carry that far into the future. Um, so, so having a hand in, in that where, number one, there's um, different offices related to oversight of contracts. I mean, the, I don't even, the idea that there's even a contract that would go 34 years is kind of ridiculous, um, particularly sight unseen. But then really putting your your input in regarding that where it's if you're going to be having animal welfare uh, animal care and you're not focusing it um, primarily on saving and preserving the animal lives then to me it's, it's not really a very well-focused plan of action so there's no reason that you are you know that you need to continue forward with that there's no reason that you have to do it it's much more just having a an appropriate direction having a focus and certainly someone to to lead the way on that i mean and even in terms of um like the prosecutions against animal offenders there's there's this very sort of dismissive nature in all of the law in terms of people who commit abuses against animals and that's something that can completely be reined in because the laws are already there they're on the books it's just in terms of focusing on that so the idea that people are being dismissed summarily because of this idea that well you're just committing an abuse against an animal but then statistically it's shown that people who are offenders against people start off as being offenders against animals you have an ability to you know hit something at the forefront before you start getting you know that type of sort of input on society so there's there's really an incentive to try and lead the way on things like that and again this isn't even implementing new um, laws or or needing to have that done it's just actually holding all of the different um, you know attorneys offices the the district attorneys offices to the, to these offenses. I mean, if someone's brought into, there's no reason to give them a slap on the wrist and let them walk away. So that's um, some of the things I would I would say in relation to the animals. So just to play devil's advocate, and I guess some of this might um, echo some of the dismissal you're talking about, but sure. someone might say, you know, we have uh, tens of thousands of people in homeless shelters. We have uh, an epidemic of domestic abuse. There's corruption with public officials and their aides going to prison, it seems, weekly. Among all those problems, um, animal rights seems to rank relatively low in terms of what we should be thinking about. What's your what's your reaction when someone well, says something like I, that? Well, I mean, I would say... Like I mean, and 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 certainly that's 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 not the first time that I've that I've heard that. Um, and I do think that 
it's it's not to the exclusion of other things, but it's more of a particular focus. So, so for instance, um, you know, even in terms of corruption, like I am um, part of the, you know, I am part of the Reform Party, and one of the biggest um, platforms in the Reform Party is having term limits, and um, you know, like so, like that right there. So, I believe in the concept of term limits, and also the idea of really getting people like civically engaged and involved. I mean, I was in court yesterday. Um, I was in uh, Staten Island Supreme Court for a case related to the New York City ballots, and the ballot layout is so completely confusing, and um, it's almost like it would be easier to to figure out if you can legally park in midtown Manhattan than it would be to figure out if you're voting for the candidate on an appropriate line or, or just the setup of the ballot itself. They have two pages. They already introduced it and said, oh, they anticipate that it's not going to work. Now, you're talking about disenfranchising voters at the exact moment in which they can present their input. And I was there to say this needs to actually be brought this needs to be brought back. You need to actually redo the ballot. You need to actually set it up differently. And I had the uh, New York City Board of Elections with nine attorneys on the other side of me presenting a case which is more or less on behalf of voters and people and just and just kind of getting out the awareness for voter engagement. So you, know, you can sort of see how a lot of these bureaucracies can really be overbearing and I mean, again, they're they're being paid for a taxpayer dollar. So again, like in terms of bringing it back to like my animal issue, that's my focus because I definitely want to bring attention to that. And from a, a an overall perspective, many people throughout the state, the majority of um, people in New York, they own animals, and the majority of them are against um, you know kill shelters. So if you can bring home one particular issue and one particular area and start to set it up on the right course and, and actually set like a, you know, a good standard, I think that you have a, a lot more hope in other areas. I mean, the attorney's general office, unfortunately, in many ways, it's very circumscribed. Like you, you can't just, um, you know, do whatever you want to do. So even as some of the candidates who are running for office, like the, um, you know, Republican and Democrat and a lot of you know claims. Oh, I'm I'm going to be filing these suits against Trump and this and that. Like, you whatever feeling they may have, the legitimacy of their ability to do so, and then also the um, effect. Even if they were able to do so, like there'd be no chance of them bringing back anything to New York or benefiting New York or them winning. So to me, that's a lot of political grandstanding to begin with. So, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of substance behind what a lot of the candidates are saying, but if you can actually start to hone in on one particular area that's not done correctly and really start to set the standard, I mean, the staff of the attorney general's office is, I mean, almost 300 attorneys. I mean, there's enough people to do it where I think you can really make a main go-to issue really meaningful and powerful and resonate. So we're on with Nancy Sliwa. She is the Reform Party candidate for attorney general. And I'm curious, just taking the animal welfare issue to be a little more more broad, uh, if you're the attorney general for the entire state, one might wonder, 
you know, New York State has a lot of dairy farms. Um, it has several uh, horse racing tracks. These are areas where some advocates have said there is a different form of annual animal cruelty than you see in shelters or with people abusing uh, animals on the street or their own pets. Do you think that if you were Attorney General, you would want to look at animal welfare more broadly? Or would um, yeah, I, absolutely. Um, 100% absolutely. Um, I, I mean, and again, I... I know that from a very, very broad perspective. Like, unfortunately, animals are just subject to so much types of abuse, um, from just being in the, 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 the food to being experimented on to, to being just considered um, by law property. So there's really no rights. No one can really fight for them. No one can really defend them. There's, a, there's this really big vacuum in terms of that. So the other areas, absolutely, I agree with. Um, and I do, I mean, I, I'm aware of the, the issue with the horses, uh, the horse racing. I, I personally, I'm not on board with that. I don't think that you should be really, really utilizing these animals in that type of way to begin with. But again, I think that's the point. If, if there's really no standard set up um, where they are just viewed as property consistently, then you have this sort of continual element of abusing them in every sort of way. Like, I mean, even with the idea of um, homeless shelters. So when women who are, you know, um, you know, fleeing an abusive um, situation and they go to a shelter, the fact that none of these shelters will take any animals that the, you know, the women, the family have. I mean, there are actually people who will stay in an abusive situation because the shelter just hasn't, you know, come to the mindset that, well, gee, maybe we should allow these people to, uh, you know, bring their animal, which in many instances is going to actually bring a lot of comfort to them. I mean, you see animals being introduced into schools. You see them being introduced into prisons, nursing homes. Like, there's so many ways to integrate them in really meaningful types of scenarios it's just that new york's really like behind the times like so even even with the idea of like rat control um, there's there's this consistent element of putting down poisons to attack um the you know the over abundance of rats which is like you know throughout all of the city throughout all of, i mean i'm sure throughout uh, parts of the state as well too but just to say well why would you be putting down poisons when there actually does exist um having cats who live in colonies who take care of the rest. It's like a natural deterrent, and we're quite behind because states throughout the United States have implemented this into programs in their system, and they're actually funding it, and they're very successful, and they've been able to avoid a lot of these issues. So the fact that every other day, you know, there's a $10 million program of eradication in one area, they're just randomly distributing poisons and, and putting them in parks where kids play, where people sit, where, where pets are being walked, I mean, where birds are interacting, like, there's just very little, um, you know, like, advanced sort of thought in terms of well, what are the implications of this and why would you not take the road of that um, the, the path of least resistance if you could when the alternative is is these options which are actually costly and dangerous so you know it's just more of a realistic approach to stuff and, and unfortunately I think that that's kind of what happens when you do have a lot of the two-party system type um, elements it's like third-party candidates like myself obviously it's very tough to get even airtime so uh, first of all that's uh, I really appreciate the fact that you're having me on here um but i was with um one of the other candidates running for attorney general at um ny uh, spectrum news about a week and a half ago 
trying to say, well, how come, you know, why we should be included in the debates for the attorney general? And it was at the same time that the two uh, major party candidates had decided to back out because they were showing solidarity, um, apparently, with the um, striking workers. And we said, okay, well, then in the alternative, well, why would you not have us on at, at one time at a different day? They and, and then all of a sudden the two candidates changed their mind, and then they had the debate yesterday, and we weren't included. So, I mean, it's it's very tough to make headway in in terms of a lot of the mainstream media, but I think a lot of the public is is pretty hip to that already, and and they I know so. to look elsewhere. I think for their so too. And I'm very glad we had you on. And actually, I'm going to let you go because we're going to bring on I think one of your fellow third party candidates for. AG. Uh, but Nancy Sleewer from the Reform, Reform Party, thanks very much for coming on WBAI. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you. And let's turn quickly now to another candidate for Attorney General. We're going to hear now from Chris Garvey. He is a libertarian running for that office. Mr. Garvey, welcome to WBAI. Thank you very much. So, so tell us who you, who you are and, uh, and why you're running for this office. Okay, I'm a patent attorney, and I'm running again. I last ran in 19, in uh, 2006 against Cuomo uh, because the Libertarian Party asked me to run. And uh, I believe in the Libertarian principle, and it's uh, a good way to promote the principle. And it's possible I could win in a five-way race where I'm the only pro-gun candidate, uh, that, and the anti-gunners all split their their vote, um, there's a possibility there. Uh, so the libertarian principle is that people should be free to do whatever they want, except to initiate force, the threat of force, or fraud against other people or their property. And laws and regulations should be tested against the libertarian principle. And if a law has another purpose, like banning hemp so that big oil companies didn't need to compete with uh, hemp diesel oil, which is, by the way, CO2 neutral, if you believe in global warming, uh, I wouldn't enforce that law. And I also wouldn't enforce laws that violate the Constitution. Um, so talk to me about uh, pro-gun. Uh, if you were to win the attorney general's office, how would you use the powers and, and authorities of that office to to pursue a pro-gun agenda? Well, I certainly wouldn't uh, prosecute anyone who was designed uh, and was uh, arrested for a uh, a gun possession or carrying uh, charge or a knife possession or carrying charge, which is one of the one of the abuses that uh, New York State has been doing, and particularly New York City. The New York City police had a tendency to arrest people who were carrying ordinary pocket knives, which were too easy to deploy because uh, you could grab the blade and use the weight of the handle to swing the thing open, and it snapped open and locked. You were carrying a gravity knife or a switchblade. Well, a switchblade is the safest knife a man on a mast can use. And as a as a sailor who spent quite a number of uh, hours up mast uh, rocking around, uh, it's nice to be able to hang on with one hand and deploy your knife with another. Uh, pull it out of your pocket, and you've been hauled safely up the mast. You pull the knife out of your pocket, you click it open, it locks safely. Now you can use it to, to accomplish your task, release the lock, close it again, put it back in your pocket. But you can't do that in New York State legally because it would be considered a gravity knife. So, but moving away from, from sailors and knives for a second, back to guns, did you say mm-hmm. you, would not, you would not prosecute anyone who was accused of uh, criminal possession of a weapon? 
Uh, if that's the only uh, accusation, no, I would not. And in fact, I would sue the state of New York to inval- invalidate several laws, one of them the Sullivan Law, the Pataki Gun Ban, the New York Safe Act, and, and the, knife, the knife ban. The Sullivan Law was designed to protect muggers because Big Tim Sullivan was a uh, gang leader. And the way he would win his state Senate seat in the uh, uh, in 1911 and before was he would go into the Democrat club with his gang members and they would beat up all the opposition and throw them out the windows. And uh, that would uh, uh, reduce the, the number of opponents in the building and he would somehow win his uh, nominations handily and then he would go out to the, the Senate. Well, he was having a problem in that people knowing what a bad neighborhood they were going into would arm themselves before they went there. And they were shooting his supporters, who were robbers. They made their money by, by mugging people. Uh, and I think he said something racist like, uh, it's getting so you can't even shake down a Dago shopkeeper fresh off the boat without getting shot. And he thought that was outrageous, that as an Irish uh, Protestant, that he should be able to disarm the blacks, the Italians, and the Irish Catholics. And that was the purpose of the Sullivan Law. Now, he, the, the law made the police chief the sole arbiter of who got a license, and the police chief in New York uh, happened to be in the pocket of Big Tim Sullivan. It was kind of corrupt in those days. And would, you, so, would you support, I'm, so I'm curious sort of how far your critique goes, um, are there any weapons that you feel a, a, a person in the United States can be barred from possessing? Poison gas, nuclear weapons, um, things like that. I, I routinely fire a cannon on the Village Green in, in Huntington as part of a historical reenactment. You have to be very careful with that because uh, even though you're not firing, firing a projectile, there's a zone of death of about 75 feet in front of the cannon barrel. But uh, no, I don't think uh, most conventional weapons uh, should be banned from, from people. Uh, the purpose of, uh, of the right to bear arms is to arm the, the militia. And the, who is the militia in New York State under state law and in the United States under federal law? The militia is all able-bodied males between the ages of 18 and 45 who are not in the military or in the organized militia. So the unorganized militia is everybody. And uh, that's that's what the legal definition is. So we're all we were all well we were in it. I'm I'm over 45 now, so I'm I'm not in the unorganized militia. But it, the purpose of that law is so that we all have weapons. So if we're invaded, we can shoot at the invaders. If our government goes bad on us, which which our founders realized was always a possibility. In fact, that's that's why the checks and balances of the Constitution were so elaborate to prevent that sort of tyranny. From, from rising up unopposed, uh, the people can overcome the government if there are enough of them and there and most of them are armed. Now, what the, what does this mean if you get into a situation where some crazy guy goes to massacre somebody? Well, in Israel, when somebody crazy goes to massacre Israelis or somebody who's a Arab terrorist goes to mass- massacre Israelis with a gun, uh, he doesn't get very far. He usually gets shot by some armed civilian. And uh, so they don't do that in, in Israel. And that, in fact, is what happens in the United States. If you wait for the police to arrive to stop a mass shooting, you're likely to have most, more than 17 people dead. 
Whereas if you, um, if a citizen stops the shooting, it's something like uh, two people dead. And uh, if it's an unarmed citizen, it's like 2.6 people dead. And if it's an armed citizen, it's only like one point two people dead on the average. So the best solution to mass shootings is to have so many armed people around that it doesn't make sense to shoot somebody. Mass shootings have mostly been uh, the successful ones, if you regard success as killing a lot of people, have mostly been in gun-free zones. And of course, New York City, for practical purposes, is a gun-free zone. Places like the Empire State Building are pretty well guaranteed to be gun-free because none of the spectators are going to have guns up there. Uh, and uh, school shootings, well, most schools are gun-free zones, so what better place to, to bring your gun and shoot a lot of people and gain a lot of publicity if that's your purpose. So um, gun-free zones are a bad thing, and New York State, a lot of New York State is a gun-free zone. And the, and the one place where they actually require everybody to have a gun is the place in New York State where they have the least crime. Because why would you try to commit a violent crime against somebody that might be armed? It's dangerous. In Florida, uh, they made it possible to get gun licenses. About 7 or 8% of the people had gun licenses. As more and more people had them, violent crimes went down. Carjacking was a big problem. Once people were armed, carjacking went down. Uh, except that they had disease on the rental car plates. And so, so I guess one question is, you know, just sitting in New York City, uh, we do have very restrictive gun laws here, and yep. the murder rate uh, has dropped precipitously here over the past 20 years, even over the past five, absent the introduction of any new right by citizens to carry firearms. How do you explain that? Well, some of it is fudging by the police. They they don't uh, like to take reports of murder and violent crime, so they will discourage those. Sorts they of discourage things. reports of murder? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, there have been several stories on NPR about stuff like that, uh, where somebody tried to report a crime and the police didn't want to hear it. Uh, but that's probably. And they not- don't do that in other states where they have unrestricted I, gun laws. Well, you know, Giuliani set up this uh, this sort of audited policing system, which was a good idea because it, it, it enables, if you're keeping honest statistics, it's enabled the uh, police to figure out where the crime is and concentrate the uh, police forces in those areas. And that may be partly responsible for the reduction in crime. Um, it may indeed. Well, uh, we have to say goodbye to Chris Garvey, the Libertarian candidate for Attorney General. Mr. Garvey, thanks for joining us, and good luck next Tuesday. Thank you, and uh, thank you very much for doing this show. Thank you. And now we're going to welcome the fifth and final uh, candidate on our speed dating uh, program of Max and Murphy. This is Mr. Michael Sussman. He is the Green Party candidate for Attorney General. Mr. Sussman, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Long-time listener, so feel solidarity with the station. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, for Good. listeners who don't know who you are, tell us who you are and uh, why you're running for Attorney General. Well, I've been a civil rights lawyer in New York State for 40 years and uh, Harvard Law School graduate in 1978, went to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. When that department decided that white men were the most endangered group, I decided to leave 
went to the NAACP national office where I was in charge of much litigation between 1981 and 1986, including the Yonkers case, which I started litigating in terms of housing and school segregation patterns in 1981. I started my own law firm focused on civil rights, constitutional law, race, sexual harassment, all forms of discrimination. In 1986, I've had my own practice since 1986, focusing on those areas and increasingly environmental despoilation and degradation in New York State. Um, so I'm running for attorney general very simply because both political parties in the state, to me, have expressed the duopoly of corruption. I believe that the Democratic candidate has essentially jumped into bed with Mr. Cuomo. He can corporate money. I think the Republican candidate has no experience in public law. He's been a corporate lawyer the last 25 years. I think the attorney general should be an active litigator, as I have been for 40 years, knowledgeable about all basic areas of law, able to lead an attorney general's force of 672 lawyers in affirmative litigation dealing with the issues of our state, not simply defending reckless state agencies. I would radically alter the way the Attorney General's office does business. I would mediate and negotiate and embrace restorative justice solutions in many of the cases that are now being litigated over the years, protracted by years. I would focus the Attorney General's office on protecting the public health and safety of our citizens and residents, on helping individuals who are felons, for instance, get jobs because discrimination against them is against two state statutes. I have a broad program for anti-corruption in the state, which would feature giving our attorney general he or she authority to extirpate corruption from public affairs in our state, which authority now does not reside with the attorney general of New York, except when delegated by the governor, which is an absurd irony. Let's stay there for a second. I, I don't want to interrupt, but that is such an important point, and it's come up in the debate uh, so often uh, this year among candidates. Because of that, because the governor is the one who, under the current uh, setup, has to give the attorney general authority to probe corruption, how do you get around that, given that I'm assuming if you were elected attorney general, the governor is someone you'd be taking a look at? Well, I think it would be such a revolutionary earthquake if the Green Party candidate won. I've been campaigning all around the state. I find tremendous support walking the communities I walk, and I expect to do very well next Tuesday. I think if that were to happen, it would provide a mandate for me or whoever whoever was elected. But it certainly if I was elected, it would provide a mandate for legislative change, which which rested with the attorney general, the authority to both investigate and prosecute political corruption. And it's a great irony in New York that currently every major case of corruption, whether it be Silver, Scalo, Sampson, Prococo, whoever, is brought by Donald Trump's Justice Department. I mean, I don't believe for a moment that Letitia James would change that, nor do I believe for a moment that uh, Mr. Wolford would change that. I think they would go along with that. They talk about corruption, but they have no program to deal with it. You need massive campaign finance reform in New York. You need a program in New York which says the attorney general has this authority that has to come to the legislature and be passed by the legislature. The governor, uh, the governor vetoed it. I think the governor could be impeached, frankly. I don't think it would happen if it was passed by the legislature. And you need then a very vigorous program because we have pay to play throughout the state. This governor has taken $100 million in nine years, 85% of which has come from major corporate interests. Ms. James has now slid over and is taking the same kind of money. Mr. Mr. Wolford comes from a corporate background and is obviously taking that kind of money. 
I've limited my contributions to $180 per person, no money from any LLC or corporation. I'm the only litigator in this race who has any significant experience in federal or state court. I've had cases in the Supreme Court of the United States. I've argued 350 appeals in the federal appellate courts and state appellate courts. This state needs someone who is prepared and ready to litigate major cases against the Trump administration and against state agencies, which won't follow the law. And I've done that. And 4,700 African-American and Latino workers with being denied promotions in New York because of discriminatory promotional exams. I'm the one who stepped up, represented them, got that exam stricken, got them $45 million. And school children in Yonkers are being desegregated, being desegregated against, discriminated against for generations. I eventually got them $300 million to radically remake the, the Yonkers public schools. These other candidates, quite frankly, have records that, that shrink compared to that. I don't care what party they are. The attorney general of New York should be an independent individual, not beholden to either political party. Mr. Sussman, we only have a a very limited time left, but I want to ask uh, the issues of race, particularly as it comes to the criminal justice system, come up a lot in discussions around how the attorney general's office might be used. You have a lot of experience in that sphere. What would be your top priorities in that regard if you were elected? What would be at the top of your agenda in terms of reforms the state needs? Well, the most important thing that has to happen is, to me is two things. There has to be bail reform, and there has to be much greater accountability in our sentencing. Those things are not really within the bailiwick of the attorney general, and people who talk about this like they are are, frankly, just, just talking. We have to have a program in New York that's enacted by the legislature that stops putting bail on individuals who have committed minor crimes who actually then serve much more time waiting a trial than they'd ever serve if they were convicted. You have to have an aggressive program of bail reform in the state. That's one thing the attorney general should be championing. But we have so many profound issues in terms of the school-to-prison pipeline. Right now in New York State, we have students in every major city. Less than 10% of them are proficient grades 3 through 8 in mathematics and English. That is a prescription for perpetuation of exactly what we've had generation after generation in New York, which is tragic outcomes for our young people, far too many of whom of color end up in the system as you described it. You need a thorough, realistic overhaul of those educational systems in order to change that. I started doing that in Yonkers. I think I have the ability, but I'm not running for governor. I'm running for attorney general. Attorney General has to jawbone on these issues, but he or she does not have fundamental responsibility for these institutions. And anybody running who says they do is fooling themselves. Well, I'm afraid, Mr. Sussman, I can't believe we're up with time, but we are. We're coming to the end of the show, so I have to say goodbye to you, but thank you so much for coming on. Michael Sussman, Green Party candidate for... Attorney General, thanks so much. You've been listening to WBAI's Max and Murphy Show. We're a week from Election Day. Uh, Make sure you check out voting.nyc. If you need any information about uh, where to go to vote, you can go to WNYC, WBAI, Max and Murphy page, uh, Gotham Gazette or CityLimits.org. Just check out our voter's guide. If you want to be part of our special two-hour live audience election night show, go to CityLimits.org or GothamGazette.com to RSVP. That's next Tuesday, 5 to 7 p.m. right here in Brooklyn. We'd love to have you part of part with us. And um, just want to say as a closing note, last night I was uh, at a vigil in Riverdale, the Bronx, uh, for the victims of the atrocity in Pittsburgh. Uh, we were speaking about the state of political discourse 
course, in our country. Obviously, those are huge issues beyond anything really we've talked about here today. But I hope that by having this array of viewpoints, we've started to perhaps have a conversation where uh, differences can be uh, discussed and and mitigated in a more uh, civil fashion than um, than is existing somewhere. And so I want to thank all the candidates who called in today to be part of that. I want to thank Reggie behind the glass for making it happen. You have been listening to WBAI's Max and Murphy, one week to Election Day. Have a good week. Shalom. Shalom.